The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church and is part of our series in the book of 1 Corinthians. For more information about our church, for more sermon audio, or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. Good morning, church. I I don't know what you were expecting when you came to church this morning, but I, I sincerely believe that God has something for us this morning. Uh, what an incredible time already in worship, and, and I cannot wait. We're going to finish out chapter 3 in 1 Corinthians. And, and so I want to invite you, if you have your Bibles, to turn with me there. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If you don't have your Bible with you, uh, there should be a Bible around you, a hardback black one somewhere. I'd love to lend that one to you. If you don't own a Bible, I'd love to give that one to you. So uh, if you're here and you don't have a Bible, I would love to, uh, for you to take that, keep it, no strings attached. As a church, we've given away cases of these, which is awesome. So if you need a Bible, please, please take one. Um, let me start us off this morning with a bit of a question. Uh, have you ever deceived yourself? Of course, this is a trick question, because the moment you say no, it just happened, right? Uh, it's a trick question. Of course, we, we all have. We have all deceived ourselves. So because we all have, for a moment, think back at a time when you have deceived yourself. For, for whatever reason, as I was reading this text, a certain time in my life came up in my mind. It was a long time ago. It was first year of college. I was in geology, I believe, is the class. And uh, I convinced myself, it was my first exam, and I convinced myself I was fine without studying, without any additional work. I mean, come on, it's geology. Um, No offense to geologists in the room, but I thought, I got this, I'm, I'm good. You know, I didn't read the extra material, but I was there in class, I listened. I should be okay, right? Have you, have you ever lied to yourself like that? Um, it's almost like I knew that I was lying to myself, but self-justification can be somewhat intoxicating, so I just kind of went with it. It was easier. But here's the thing. Self-deception doesn't quite work on a test, right? You're sitting there with, with your desk, and you have the test on your desk and a pen, and all of a sudden, that test reveals the emptiness of the lies you've been telling yourself. <laughs> you look at it, and you're like, oh, no. Because no matter how good you are at lying to yourself, no matter how much you convinced yourself, you're fine. I don't even care if you convinced yourself that you know more than the professor. It does not matter because that test reveals. It reveals the truth, the full and complete truth. So have you been there? It's a fun place to be. It's a fun place to be. Uh, Paul is looking at this church in Corinth, and he is encouraging them away from this feeling, that dreaded feeling when the test is on your your desk. He's already told us in verse 13, if you look just a few verses earlier, it says, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. He told him, guys, there is a test coming. It is coming, the exam is coming, be warned, the day will disclose it, the, meaning the test is going to reveal it, like my geology test revealed my knowledge of rocks. The test will, will reveal uh, your preparedness, the day will disclose it. And then in verse 18, Paul, where we'll pick up this morning, says, 
let no one deceive himself. So again, have you deceived yourself? Let me just add to this before we go any further. Um, It is one thing to be deceived by someone else. It's an awful feeling to be lied to, to be deceived. You feel kind of used. You feel like trust has been destroyed. It's an awful, truly terrible feeling. Um, But what happens when the deception comes from the inside out? Um, Here's the reality. You are the best person on the planet at lying to you. Bar none. You are the best person that has ever lived uh, at lying to you. Uh, No one has lied to you more than you. No one. Not even close. No one. Um, The problem is just that we are so good at justifying ourselves. We're so good at it, and, and it, which leads us to lie more. It's like this downward spiral. So thinking of my geology test, we, we lie to ourselves, which is, I don't need to study. Lie. We lie to ourselves. Then we take the test, and it doesn't go well. And then I justified myself by saying, this professor's not that great. <laughs> right? I'm not a geologist. This professor's not great. Um, that test was unfair. And so you kind of justify the lie that you told yourself so that you can lie again to yourself in the future. It's a weird game we play, and it's kind of this downward spiral. I'll put it like this. If anyone lied to you as much as you lie to you, you would probably not be their friend. Right? You, you wouldn't. If you would, it's, it's weird. So Jeremiah 17, 9 through 10 is this beautiful text. I love this because I think it sums it up well. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So the heart, your heart, your precious heart is deceitful above all things, is deceitful. Um, sick, desperately sick, misunderstood. And Jeremiah says, the Lord searches the heart and tests the mind, which is exactly what Paul is reiterating in verse 18. Let no one deceive himself on this. Now, Paul is obviously not referring to a geology exam. So what is Paul talking about here when when he calls us not to deceive ourselves? Let's read this. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you, in verse 18, thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise. Uh, They are futile, that they are futile. This kind of hits close to home. I mean, obviously not to us, but to those other Christians, that other church, it hits really right? This hits close to home. Of course, um, Paul is talking about all of the ways that we seek wisdom, that we seek identity, that we seek uh, status, that we try to be wise, that we try to put our confidence in, all of the ways that we try to do this in the things of the world. That we, all of the ways that we pursue the world, all of the things that make us think that we are something, all of the things that provide us with this false assurance and this false identity. Uh, and Paul says here, don't deceive yourself. These things are bankrupt. So again, let me ask one more time. Have you ever deceived yourself in this context? I want to point out two things just very quickly before we move on. 
Uh, Number one, you can look wise to everyone around you and be a fool before the Lord. You can look wise to everyone around you and be an absolute fool before the Lord. Meaning, um, you can pursue all that they pursue. You can have all that they tell you you need to have. You can be respected. You can have everything. You can excel at everything they hold important. You can have a great job. You can earn a great living. You can live in a great home in a great neighborhood that is safe. You can do all. You can spend your money the way they do. You can save your money the way they do. You can spend your time the way that they spend theirs. You can make friends, make decisions, make family decisions. You can even have a vague belief in God like they do. You can have all of these things. You can live your life and be awesome in the world's eyes and be a fool in the Lord's and be a complete fool. If you let them be your mark of wisdom, you can hit the mark and not be wise. You can nail it. You can hit their mark, missing the wisdom of God. So you can look wise to everyone around you, look like a fool before the Lord. Let me just expand this a little bit, is you can look like a fool before the, before the world and be wise before the Lord. You can look like a fool, meaning your life can look countercultural. You cannot have all that they pursue. You can maybe not have all the things that they tell you that you need. You can spend your time, your money, your resources differently. You can organize your relationships in a way that is different. You can confuse them. You have this relationship with God, this ruthless devotion to Jesus Christ, and your coworkers could very well look you in the eyes and say, you're a fool. You are a fool. Your family, who maybe does not know Jesus, could look at your life and say, you don't make sense. I don't understand you. You are a fool. You can live your life and not make any sense to the lost world but you can be wise before the Lord. In other words, the world around us should not ever be our measurement for determining what is wise and what is not. The world around us should not be our measurement tool because the Lord's wisdom and the the world's wisdom are are two different things. And oftentimes, they oppose each other. Oftentimes, they oppose each other. In fact, let me just push this. If you, as a follower of Jesus, live your life, I mean, do live your life, spend your time, spend your money, lead your family, have your relationships, and, and you make perfect and complete sense to every lost person, that should be a sign of trouble. If you make perfect and complete sense to someone who does not know Jesus, As a follower of Jesus, that should be a sign to assess yourself. It should be a sign of concern. Paul says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. In other words, let us untether ourselves from what the world tells us is wise. Let us untether ourselves from what, honestly, what we tell ourselves is wise. 
And let us then tether ourselves to what God tells us is wise. And fortunately, the great thing, church, is God has given us his word. God has given us what is wise. God has given us his heart. God has given us a way to know him, to know his heart, to know true wisdom. Let us tether ourselves to this. Let us tether ourselves to this, even when it doesn't make sense. Listen to verse 19. For the wisdom of the world is folly with God. For it is written, um, he catches the wise in their craftiness. I, I love this because it, it paints this imagery for me. I, um, this comes from Job. It's a quote from Job. But I love this, in, it, this imagery. Uh, it reminds me of my children. When they do something just absolutely dumb and, and they try to get away with it, they try to deceive me and they're horrible at it, you see right through them, like they're terrible at this, but they try to deceive you, they try to, you know, pull one over on you, and as a parent, it's not my first rodeo, I know, I'm like, I know what you did, I, you didn't even have to tell me, your face tells me what you did, and, and it's like you catch them and what they think is crafty, and I get this feeling as I read this, that's the exact imagery that I see is God looking down on us and saying, what do you do? I see right through you. Like, you're, you're not getting away with anything here. This, is, you're not, this isn't gonna go well. He catches the world in their craftiness. As, as smart as my kids are, as smart as we think we are, uh, he catches us in our craftiness. And then he, Paul takes it another level. He quotes uh, Psalm 94. He says, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, right? So this whole other level here is God sees the heart. He sees what we, uh, he knows our thoughts like we already said in Jeremiah. He, he searches the heart and tests the mind. Uh, Paul, Paul is being very clear. You can deceive yourself. You can deceive others in your life. You can deceive people in this room. But you cannot deceive me. God says, you cannot deceive me. I see. I see your heart. I search your heart. I test your heart. And since this is true, Paul is just saying, stop deceiving yourself. Stop deceiving yourselves. The thing the things that the world is telling us that we need to pursue, the things that we use to justify ourselves before the world, all of the world's value, they aren't our standard of measurement. And as I was thinking about this, I think we honestly know this intellectually. We know this. For example, uh, we know that no amount of money, no amount of money is going to complete you. Every lottery winner can be a testament to that, right? We know that no amount of money will complete us. We know that no job, no status, uh, no amount of kids, uh, no car, no house, no spouse, no lifestyle, no nothing. We know that none of these things will complete us. We know this. But yet how, how many times do we catch ourselves absolutely devoting ourselves giving everything we have to chase after these things as if they will. We deceive ourselves. We deceive ourselves, organizing our entire lives just infatuated with what the world tells us we need. 
let us not deceive ourselves. Church, this is self-destruction or self-deception. It destroys us, it divides us. And, and, and Paul says, church, this is bankrupt because the Lord sees right through it. Self-deception is to love what the world loves, to pursue what the, the world pursues, to live the way the world tells you you should live, and to forget that you have been called out, that you have been set apart, and that the gospel, your gospel, the gospel that saved you is countercultural. And we forget this, we deceive ourselves. When, let me give you some examples. When the world tells us that all we need to do to be happier is to acquire more things, the gospel says no. No, no. In Christ, you have everything you need. Happiness, joy is not found from anything external. It is found because we are his. That's what the gospel tells us. The, the culture may tell us that we need to be tolerant of others and all roads lead to him. All roads lead to heaven. And the gospel says, no. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus is the truth. And more than that, the gospel doesn't call us to tolerance. Tolerance is puny. The gospel calls us to far more than tolerance. The gospel calls us to love. To love, not to put up with, not to tolerate, but to to love, to love each other, to love the world. Jesus says to love your enemy, to, to love the, it's not about tolerance. The world tells us that we need to live and provide safe lives for ourselves and our families, that this needs to be, you better, you better provide safety for you. And the gospel says no. no. Nothing you do is safe. The gospel, it doesn't call you to a safe life. It calls you to Jesus Christ. And in Christ, you are safe and secure for all eternity. But it is not, not about us crafting safety in this life. Jesus, I mean, just think about it. Jesus says, if you cling to this life, you will lose it. If you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. Jesus says, come, take your cross and follow me. Come and die. That is not safe language. The gospel is not safe. The gospel is not and has never been safe, but in Christ we are safe and secure. The world tells us that we all deserve heaven. The world tells us that, that all, we're, we're good people. None of us deserve, the gospel says no. We all deserve hell, but God being rich in mercy and love, sent Jesus Christ to die on our behalf, that by his grace we can know him. We've been given life and life abundantly. We deserve hell. We've been given Christ. That's what the gospel tells us. Here's my point. Through all of this, the gospel is and has always been countercultural. It's been countercultural, and it's counter to the world's wisdom. It has always been counter to it. We always get in trouble as Christians when we try to take the gospel and fit it, massage it in what the world believes when it's not supposed to be massaged in. We've been called out, transformed. Paul is urging us to, to follow after, to seek the wisdom of God, to follow God's word, to follow God's wisdom, even when the world does not understand us, even when our family doesn't, our coworkers don't, even when we feel that pressure my family doesn't have everything that this other family has. 
The world is, is saying, I need this, and I don't have it. And what should I do with it when we wrestle with the fact that we are different? You should look different. You should, as a follower of Jesus, look different from the world around you. Not in a weird, creepy, Christian subcultural way, okay? Don't do that. No one wants that. But we should live in a way that is different because we are called out. Because we have been transformed by the gospel. And that should show. That should show up in the way we make our decisions. That should show up in the way we live our life. That should show up in the way we spend our money, our time, uh, our relationships, our marriage, our family. It should show up that we have been set apart and changed. Paul just lays this out for us. Pursue Christ, not the wisdom of the world, but pursue the wisdom of God no matter what the world thinks. And now, church, Paul is gonna tell us why. Paul's gonna tell us why. He gave the command, now he's gonna give the reason. Listen to this, verse 21. Let no, so let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the, or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. So to understand this, let me just take a step back, all right? Just a step back. In chapter one, Paul's already talked about all this. In chapter one, uh, starting in verse 10, he's telling them, stop being divided among yourself. And then in, in verse 12, he says, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? He picks this up in, in chapter three. He says, are you, why are you still of the flesh? There's still jealousy. There's still division. And in verse four, he says, for one of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? Paul is saying here, why are you saying this? Why are you saying, I am Paul's? I am Apollos's. I am Peter's. Why are you saying this? Is Christ divided? No. Why are you saying this instead? Listen to the contrast now that Paul gives. Let me read this again. For all things are yours. All things are yours whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. Paul is saying, why are you saying I am Paul's and Apollos's and I am Peter's? Why are you saying this? Because I tell you that all things are yours. Paul is yours. Apollos is yours. Peter is yours. Do you see this? Do you see the way Paul has just turned what they've been saying upside down. He, he turns it upside down. Paul says, these guys are yours. These great leaders in the faith, these great teachers, you don't have to decide among them which one you're gonna be, uh, pledge your allegiance to as though you belong to them. No, 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 no. These great men, these great leaders are yours in Christ. Don't divide yourself because of this. Instead, they are yours these men are yours. Not only that, but Paul says the world is yours. So the world has been a pretty negative thing up to this point in this letter, right? The world's ways is not exactly what we want. But here Paul says the world is yours, meaning you are not a slave to it. You're not a slave to the world. You're not a slave to whatever it has for you. You're not a victim no, God created the world, beautiful, wonderful. Yes, it is mixed with 
some sin and brokenness and messiness. That's the world we live. That's the world we live. Um, But we as God's people have been given the world, and Paul says you are not a slave to the world. You are not to be mastered by it. It has been given to you. Don't show your allegiance to it. Instead, it is yours to be enjoyed, to be cared for, to tend, to steward. It is yours. It doesn't master you. You are the master. It has been given to you. Not only that, but Paul says life and death. Life and death. Uh, Life is yours, meaning every breath, every moment is yours. You're not a victim of your life. Life doesn't happen to you. It doesn't happen to you. It doesn't own you. It doesn't master you. Life is given to you to use, to steward well. Life has been given to you. It is yours, Paul says, and even death. Church, even death. Death does not master you. Death does not Think about this. In Christ, death is your servant because it does nothing than to just bring you to him. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? In Christ, death is yours. Life and death, death even serves us. And then Paul says present and future. The present in yours meaning is yours, meaning this moment, this day, This time is a divinely appointed moment for you, and it is yours. It doesn't own you. You own this moment to be stewarded. You're not a victim of your present. It's not like God will one day in the future get around to making your present be for your good. It's today. It is now. You are not a slave to your present. This life is is yours through Jesus Christ. The scriptures say that Jesus came to give you life and life abundantly. And it's not like that, the pause button's been pushed on that until you die and then you put resume, right? It's, It's life abundantly now. Life is yours. Life is, the present is yours. And church, the future, oh church, no matter what comes your way, no matter what, Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. The future is yours. The future is yours. 10 seconds from now, 10 hours from now, 10 days, 10 weeks, 10 months, 10 years, 10 decades, a millennium. It's yours, and you have nothing to fear when you look at the future. Absolutely nothing to fear. The future is yours. Church, that's the gospel. That's good news, amen? Paul says all of this, all of this is yours, that through Christ you are no longer a slave. And that's why Romans 8.28 makes sense. Romans 8.28 says, for we know that, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. How do we know that? How can we say that? How can we believe that? Because church through Christ, all things are yours. All things are yours, and this is good news that has profound implications. Profound implications. Um, Church, don't deceive yourself. 
into thinking that all the things that the world is telling you to pursue, that you need all of those things, that you should direct your life to those things. God sees it and calls it foolish because our boast, as Paul says, is not in this world, is not in men. It is not there. Our confidence is not in the world and what it has to offer because Paul says, all things are yours. And for some of us in this room right now, for some of us, This morning is a call from God to stop allowing yourself to be a slave of the things of this world. For too long, you have been a slave to what this world is trying to do to you, the the way this world is shaping you, shaping what you value, um, shifting your direction for too long, whether it be your job, your career, your family, your relationships, Sin, for too long, things have owned you. For too long, you have been too content for being a slave to the things of this world. And Paul says, church, as, a, as children of God, you are not to be owned by any of this. You are not to be owned. Instead, all is yours to be used, to point you to Christ, to be rightly used. All of this is yours. And then listen to verse 23. All is yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God. So follow me. You are no longer a slave, right, in Christ. You're no longer a slave. You're no longer a slave to this world, to sin. You're no longer a slave to fear life or even death. Nothing owns you. Amen? Nothing owns you. And why is that true? Because you already have a rightful owner. Nothing owns you because you already have a rightful owner. You have been bought with a price. You have been purchased. You are not owned by anyone or anything in this world because you already have an owner as a follower of Jesus Christ. You are, listen to this. Paul's gonna say this just in a, a few uh, chapters to your right. All right, listen to this in, in chapter six. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Verse 19, you are not your own. For you have been bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Paul says, all is yours. You are not owned by anyone or anything in this world. All is yours. Instead, all is given to you for the glory of God, for your ultimate good. All is yours. All things are yours because all of you is his. All Things are yours because all of you is his, every part of you. Hear me, all of your good, all of your bad, all of the ugly. Everything is his. You have been bought with a price. He did not die for part of you. I want you to imagine you go out and you buy a field, seven acres of land. You buy it, purchase it in full. It is yours, all of it. And you walk away from the transaction with one acre. Not many of us would be too uh, thrilled about that transaction. Why? Because you bought the field, the whole field, not one acre of it. You bought the field, not a portion of the field, the field. 
Church, Christ died for you, all of you, not a portion of you, not the Sunday morning version of you, not the religious side of you. He purchased with his blood all of you, the Sunday version and the Monday. He purchased you. He says, Paul says, all things are yours. Church, all of you is his. All of you is his. When Christ, think of this, when Christ was on that cross, he did not suffer and die for the best version of you. He did not suffer and die for the good parts of you, the best parts of you. He did not die for the future version of you. He died for you, all of you. In this moment, no matter what you are, what you are wearing on your shoulders, Christ died for you, all of you. All things are yours because all of you is his. You were bought with a price, price purchased by the blood of Christ, paid in full. All of you is his. And so now, because of this, let us no longer be slaves to this world. It makes no sense because we have an owner. We have a master, and this world is not it. Listen to this again. All are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God. So let's, let's think about that last statement. Paul wraps this up with a little bit of a funny, funny phrase by saying Christ is God's. What on earth is that, Right? Church, it, it, is, it is simple. This is a statement by God, or by Paul, to, to increase the confidence that this church has to provide assurance to say, look, all of this, all of these things are yours because all of you are his. And then listen to this. And all of this is God's plan. All of this is God's plan. Remember the statement by, by, by Jesus, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Church, Jesus is the plan of God. From the beginning, Ephesians says, before the foundations of the world, Jesus was the plan of God. Christ is God's. In other words, Christ came, died for you, for all of you, for every part of you. And as he did that, he perfectly and completely fulfilled the Father's plan. Every part. All things are yours because all of you is his and all of this is God's perfect and wonderful plan. And that church, that right there, that's the gospel. That is, that is the gospel because of God's grand rescue plan for you in Jesus Christ, because Christ came and purchased you wholly and completely, because we are his and we are given all things. Let me finish with where we started. Paul says, stop deceiving yourselves. Stop dividing against yourselves. Stop pursuing all of the things that the world tells you to pursue. Uh, stop living as though you were owned by the world. And let us understand, let us know that, and let us live knowing that we belong to Christ. All of this, all of the things, they don't master you. You have a master. 
Christ has not called you into slavery, but to freedom in him. And all of this, church, is part of God's perfect plan for your life. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for using your word to pierce our heart. God, I pray for for all of us in this room. The hard thing about self-deception is it is really hard to self-identify. And we need your help. God, right here in this moment, would you show us, reveal to us the ways that we are deceiving ourselves, that we are buying the lie that that the world is, is feeding us. I pray for any and every person in this room who is caught in pursuing things that we shouldn't be pursuing. I pray for those in this room who have given themselves over to just chasing after all of the things and believing the lie that when we get them, that we will be fulfilled. God, your word has shown us that this is not true, that it is a lie. And I just pray for every person in this room who is believing that lie, that you open their eyes, that you show them that they are loved that all of this is not meant to master them, but that all things are theirs. I pray that you show every person in this room that we have been bought with a price. We have been set apart, called to Christ. And I just, right now, I just pray that we rejoice in the fact that this is a part of your beautiful and grand plan. Thank you for your gospel and let it transform our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.